Hey, I'm Greg from Toronto. I'm Claire from Pittsburgh. I'm Lee from Fargo, North Dakota. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedians are like flowers. Some of them are sunflowers. Everyone likes sunflowers. They work pretty much everywhere. But even a great sunflower is, you know, pretty good. I mean, it's a sunflower. How great can it be? Maria Bamford, though. Maria Bamford is not a sunflower. I think I I may be the uh, orchid of comedy uh, where you have to have this, you know, certain temperature in the room and then get the right amount of moisture and it takes years to really get a bloom going but um once you do they're so beautiful oh it got too hot (laughs) it's bullseye this week maria bamford talks about the kind of friends who can make your depression even worse I talked to my spiritual advisor, and he said people who commit suicide, that sometimes they just need to go on to the next level, the next world. And so I guess I've just come in to, to say goodbye. Okay, you're horrible. <laughs> She's just released her new stand-up special, The Special Special Special. But first, I talked to the writer George Saunders. He reveals some of his early creative challenges. I can remember very clearly when I was in college having fairly sophisticated literary insights and not being able to say them. Feeling that there's something luminous that I I have access to in in feeling, but but in terms of speech, I don't have it yet. And how he solved them. All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend pop culture that is worth your time. This week, we're talking about comics with Alex Zalbin from MTV Geek and Brian Heater, comics columnist for Boing Boing. Hey, guys. Hey, Jesse. Hey, how are you? Hey, listen, Alex, we don't usually talk about traditional superhero comics, the old, you know, spandex and superpowers type situation, but your recommendation on today's show is a traditional superhero comic. It's called Hawkeye, Volume 1, My Life as a Weapon. Uh, Tell me, is this something that people might like if they're, you know, not deeply steeped in the world of superhero comics? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think Marvel is doing particularly well right now is allowing writers and artists to have their own voice, even in the realm of superhero comics. You know, certainly you have fisticuffs and you have people dressed up in colorful costumes, but the whole pitch of Hawkeye, written by Mac Fraction, is that it's what this guy who's on the Avengers does on his days off. So there's an issue where he's rewiring his DVR or he's just (laughs) hanging out at a barbecue, things like that, which doesn't sound like it would be exciting, but it's extremely wittily written by Fraction and, oh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but David Aja or Aha uh, draws it beautifully. And actually the art is, I think, closer to a Chris Ware than traditional superhero comics. Uh, It's definitely my favorite thing that's coming out of Marvel right now. And even if you don't know anything about Hawkeye, the recap is usually he's an Avenger, 
This is days off. That's all you need to know. I'm looking at it now, and um, the aesthetics of it are really quite beautiful. It's certainly not what you would expect from the traditional kind of, you know, reproduced by Lichtenstein color panel comic look. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all Aja's art, but working really well with Fraction. You know, Fraction gives him scripts that lend to a very different panel layout, to a very different look, uh, to something that is much more real-world than roided-out heroes punching each other all the time. You know, there's an issue that came out recently where it was seven days in the life of Hawkeye, but it was told entirely out of order and sometimes changed halfway through the day. But by the end, it really just illuminated kind of what a regular week would be like in a superhero. And it's not all end-of-the-world stuff. Sometimes it's just making a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or hanging out with your protege. Brian, let's talk about a comic called Don't Go Where I Can't Follow by Anders Nilsson. Um, this was originally published in a very limited edition in 2006. It's just been republished. And um, it, it is the story of a six-year relationship between the author and a, a partner and the illness that brought it to an end. Um, what do you like about this book? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's pretty clear uh, once you get into it why it was in limited edition. It's certainly one of the most personal comics that I've, I've ever read. Um, and I went into it... It was probably for the best. I went into it not really knowing what to expect. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, of Anders Nilsson's work. You know, he's kind of a, an indie comic superstar. Um, you know, it's not really a comic per se for most of it. You know, there's not a lot of panels. There's not a lot of sequential storytelling throughout. Um, it starts off with a lot of letters between the two of them as they're kind of forming the relationship. Uh, and then, you know, as as you said, takes a, a, a pretty sad turn and is kind of about the end of uh, their relationship and the end of her life. Uh, really, you know, really, really touching. It certainly got one of the, uh, the, the, the largest emotional reactions out of me that I've ever gotten from a comic before. It's told, as you sort of alluded to, in the form of a pastiche of different forms, including actual literal documents of this relationship, stuff like postcards um, and, and journal entries. Uh, is that part of its power? Well, you know, obviously it's filtered through uh, through through Anders' uh, viewpoint for the most part. But, I mean, it really is, you know, uh, his uh, his his partner – gets co-writing credit because you know really uh, about about half of what you see in there is uh, is from her and it's really uh, it's a dialogue between the two of them you know in the, in the form of postcards and and actual letters and i i think that probably gives you more insight into the relationship than you ever possibly could get from just a comic brian heater a comics columnist for boing boing recommends don't go where i can't follow by anders nelson and alex Zalbin from mtv geek recommends Hawkeye Volume 1, My Life as a Weapon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest George Saunders graduated from the Colorado School of Mines. 
In his 20s, while he was working in the mineral industry in Sumatra, he realized he didn't want to be a geologist. He wanted to be a writer. That decision, I have to say, has worked out pretty well for him. His short stories and essays earned him a MacArthur Genius Grant a few years ago, and I can verify, having read some of his books, that genius is a fair thing to call him. His stories are often about people who live without self-awareness in a world that's maybe half a step more grotesque than ours. They try to maintain some sense of dignity as they blunder through a life warped by the downsides of capitalism. People work in theme parks as costume characters and as pharmaceutical test subjects. They import third world girls to be their lawn ornaments. It's really kind of sad and really, really funny. His newest book of short stories is 10th of December. George Saunders, welcome back to the show. It's nice great to, to have you here. Nice to be here again, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I read some interviews uh, that you've done uh, along your book tour trail thus far, and you've been describing yourself as having had a period of relative happiness. Not that you were Mr. Sadman before. Not so but, much, yeah. But um, maybe you could describe sort of the place that you were in your life when you wrote this book. Yeah. Well, I, it was kind of uh, our kids were in high school and then in college. And so part, partly it was just this feeling like, uh, you know, we had done well. They're great, great people. And, and uh, so, you know, my stuff is always pretty dark. It, it's not not by design, but just kind of that's where I can get traction if I start something on kind of the worst day or the uh, – you know, in in an office, it's the worst manifestation of corporatism or something. So that's not really a mission statement, but it's just what I have to do to get any momentum going. But in this one, I just found myself getting to places where uh, the sort of auto response would be to let the baby go over the cliff, you know, or, or let the bad thing happen. And just aesthetically, it was more interesting to kind of pause and go, well, wait a minute now, is it the case that things are always rotten? No, it's not. So therefore... Is there any way we could reflect that that realization aesthetically? So it was both kind of a, a personal realization, but also aesthetically, you know, you have to kind of keep turning in a way that's new. And in this book, at certain places, the, the, the new turn was one that was towards maybe like opening the possibilities up or, or something like that. So You wrote your first book while you were still working as a technical writer. And a, a lot of your writing has that feeling of the kind of, odd terseness that a like an office mm. memo has yeah i wonder if I, I wonder if like being immersed in that is still something that you think about sometimes when you're writing sentences of, of literary well a fiction. lot when i'm asleep i have the dream you know the dream of going back to that office and they've changed the operating systems on the computer <laughs> and everybody's vaguely snotty like oh mr writer oh you're back how nice for you well we don't really have anything for you at this time. So that it's still real to me. But I think that was that was a big moment for me because I come to writing maybe from a yeah, – I was an engineering student and I grew up in Chicago. We didn't know any other writers. So I came to it with the kind of the, the usual set of assumptions that someone who's from without that word has, which are writing is about being more articulate than you could ever be in real life and that writing literature was a thing that I could – maybe do for three minutes a day if I was lucky, you know, that kind of reverence and, and stuff. And then for me, a big a big turning point was when I realized that literature actually is just whatever language happens to be like in your culture at that moment, in all its million forms, turning towards that with a little attentiveness 
and maybe cranking up the volume on that mode of discourse by 20%. So that means that it's, you know, interestingly, that whatever you hear, that has to be the seeds of literature. So if you're in a corporation and maybe your first instinct is to sneer at the, the memos, but then, you know, the artisan, you should go, wait a minute, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe any diction that you overflow is poetry. You have two different stories in this collection where the protagonist who is profoundly inarticulate is administered articulateness drugs. Yes. One of them works in a sort of medieval times type context uh, that is the theme restaurant, medieval times. Right, right. And is administered a, a drug that makes them able to be medievally. Yeah, yeah it's called nightlife. <laughs> so what... What what do you like about the difference between someone being inarticulate and then transforming mm. them into hyper-articulate? <laughs> Maybe it's the autobiographical. That's right. Yeah, well, no, I mean, no, I was sincerely I wondering, like, is it part of it just you sitting there and feeling like, oh, I'm a dummy, and then I wish there was a switch I could turn that would turn me into a magical literary Well, guy. it's kind of it's kind of two things. It's one that I can remember very clearly when I was in college uh, – having fairly sophisticated literary insights and not being able to say them, feeling that there is something luminous that I, I have access to in, in feeling, but but in terms of speech, I don't have it yet. And then when I started reading more and I went to Syracuse and started studying, you know, that magical thing happens where as you put language into yourself that's uh, sophisticated, suddenly your ability to express yourself improves. So that, in a sense, that's kind of, you know, my the life story. But the other part of it is... Um, in some of the earlier books, one of the things I reflexively did was to just sort of dumb myself down a bit. So the narrator might be, say, whatever, 40% less articulate than I could be if, if I had to be. In a sense, it was just like, how do I excuse that in narratively? How do I get myself to go from maybe a 6 to a 9 on my own personal articulate scale? And in this case, it was just, oh, give him a drug, you know. So then it's interesting that your aesthetic uh, boredoms and inclinations, your, your aesthetic restlessness will often lead you to thematic things that you wouldn't have thought of out of the context. There's a, a bit in this in the book that I, I was hoping that you could read. It's the beginning of uh, this story called The Semplica Girl Diaries. And it's not business talk. It is much more personal than that. But um, I, I think it's a really good example of the way that you pinch language, like sticking your sticking your thumb over the opening of a garden hose or something like that. Yeah, because the, 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 the joke here is that this is a diary entry of a, a young father or a middle-aged father, and so he's kind of doing that thing we all do in diaries, which is omit articles and kind of... So this is just the entry for September 3rd. <clears throat> Having just turned 40, I resolved to embark on grand project of writing every day in this new black book just got at Office Max. Exciting to think how in one year, at rate of one page per day, we'll have written 365 pages. And what a picture of life and times then available for kids and grandkids, even great-grandkids, whoever, all are welcome to see how life really was, is now. Because what do we know of other times, really? How clothes smelled and carriages sounded? Well, future people know, for example, about sound of airplanes going over at night, since airplanes by that time passe. Will future people know sometimes cats fought in night? Because by that time some chemical invented to make cats not fight. Last night dreamed of two demons having sex and found it was only two cats fighting outside window. Will future people be aware of concepts of demons? Will they find our belief in demons quaint? Will windows even exist? 
interesting to future generations that even sophisticated college grad like me sometimes woke in cold sweat, thinking of demons, believing one possibly under bed. Anyway, what the heck, I'm not planning on writing encyclopedia. If any future person is reading this, if you want to know what a demon was, go look it up in something called an encyclopedia, if you even still have those. I'm getting off track, due to tired, due to those fighting cats. We'll write 20 minutes a night, no matter how tired. This story is about a dad. He's a bit of a sad dad, a classic sad dad. <laughs> um, and I wonder if you have ever felt, and he's partly sad because he feels the sort of economic pressure of living in a, you know, in a capitalist context where some people, other families are richer than his family and he's embarrassed for his kids. He doesn't know how to protect his kids from that. Um, I wonder if you've ever felt that way yourself as a dad. Oh, yeah, like from 1988 until present. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we, I mean, you know, we were, my wife and I were kind of madly in love and just, oh, well, just, let's go for it. You know, we didn't have any money. So, um, and and one of the, the early things I realized about myself was that if I wanted to have any longevity as a writer, I, I couldn't go the starving artist route with, especially with a family. I just would, it would be too, uh, stressful and worrisome. So I thought, I'll just start working, you know. So I got a tech writing job and, it, you know, it didn't pay that well. And so we were never really hurting, uh, but we always felt that, um, you know, that the kids would go to school and there'd be, uh, you know, people who were going on exotic vacations and people who had that kind of ease that money affords you, you know. And uh, so it, we just had slight pressure, you know, that feeling that um, uh, a race, you know, that, okay, high school's coming, we want to make sure to have just enough to, to be able to sort of pass, you know. So, uh, and I think part of what you do as a writer is you take those little small inclinations, totally workable, no big deal, but then you just exaggerate them some percentage. And in this case, one of the things that we did, and my wife had been married once before and had had money, so she said, you know what people do who have money? They uh, they take their kids on vacation every year to the same spot, you know. I said, well, we can't afford it. And she's really wise, and she said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pretend we can. So we had credit cards, like out-of-control credit cards, and we sort of simulated this life that was pretty great, you know, and then, uh, you know, paid them off, and it was fine. So, so I think part of the thing was to, to kind of— <laughs> you're, you're describing to me, you you say that your wife is wise in, in coming up with this plan. No, it, it worked. like a horrible it, no, plan. No, it, it, it worked because, you know, with writing, you get little bursts of money, you know. So so we had we had kind of a funny thing whenever we were doing the bills. We'd kind of look at each other, and she'd just go, well, it takes money to make money, which t- totally, you know, as we were spending ourselves— You were investing in vacations. We were investing in the future. But, but it was—you know, so all of it was workable and, and fine, but—, but uh, as a writer, when I turn to that material, it's really it's interesting to me. Maybe because it's uh, it was it's like the it was like the dominant narrative of the last twenty years or thirty years of my life. This idea that you, you know, there there's pressure. There's uh, capitalism plunders the sensuality of the body. Said Terry Eagleton, and so you um, most of us who are somewhat high functioning, it's fine. You know, you're not starving. But I think one of the uh, maybe under maybe underwritten qualities of American life is that constant quiet pressure. That you know, this saying you could fail. In my experience, it it it, it permeates every aspect of your life. You know, even and it's, it's funny because even if you're doing well, it 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 permeates. You know, if 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 there's a wolf at the door, even if you're warm and cozy, you're aware of the wolf. And if the wolf eats your neighbor, you hear it. You know, and and you can say, well, uh, he should have worked a little harder. He should have worked smarter. But you know, as his cries go out into the night, you there's no way that doesn't affect your your well being. More with George Saunders after a break.
It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. MaximumFun.org is proud to present BoatParty.biz, a website with a picture of a boat and a place to type in your email address. Online at BoatParty.biz. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest George Saunders is a short story writer and a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. His stories are funny, sometimes brutal, and explore stripped-down versions of modern society. His new collection is called Tenth of December. This this story, the uh, the Semplica girl story, is the protagonist, the dad in this story, suddenly wins ten thousand dollars in the lottery. Yeah, which is a really particular amount of money. I mean, I remember <laughs> yeah. stopping on it when I heard that he read $10,000. Mm-hmm. It's $10,000. That's that's the amount of money that is a lot of money, but at the same time not enough money to be to really do something that's or right. change something. Especially after taxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, it's funny cuz I wrote that uh story it started in 98 actually and kind of got stuck. And I wrote that part about him winning the lottery. And then I swear, six months later, our next door neighbors in Syracuse won the ten million dollar lottery. So, it, and it looked like, wow, that was you know, did I somehow I caused that? I should have caused it closer to home. But no, that that that's an amount of money that if you don't have any, you think, ah, oh, yes, we made it. And I think everyone, you know, it's funny. People's inclination, whenever they get any good luck, is to accept it as their due. You know, they earned it. And also to overestimate the effect it'll have. So I think that's one of the things that in the story that he does. He could have done some really smart, practical things with it, but he he doesn't because he kind of thinks uh, he 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 thinks that's kind of the uh, the uh, the what's the word the praise or the kind of uh, uh, what is the word praise? He thinks it's the something. Well, that, I think you you said it was it was what's due him. I mean, right. it, he thinks it's it's the universe coming back around. Like, it's the approval he's always been waiting for. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And of course it's just, it's not. It's just a small amount of money that, that he then And it's of, and it's also a payment for nothing. It's payment for buying a lottery right, ticket. So right. it's very different from something that you, you know, it's not like he won a $10,000 prize in a pie baking contest. Or humanities con- Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and some of, some of the early drafts that was one that was one of the riffs was that he was going to misunderstand that as, uh, but but that didn't really that wasn't really too productive. So the um, the thing that he ends up spending this money on is his garden. It's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. well, um, he has gone to this fancy party um, at one of his daughter's school friends' house, and they have this majestic garden, and it has this central element in it, which is quite popular in all the bourgeois homes. And I, I feel like I should leave it to you to describe what this is. Well, you know, I the story had its origin. I had a dream during this period in Syracuse when our kids were little. And in the dream, I got up, went to a, a, a non-existent window. Our house didn't have this window, but it looked into the backyard. And uh, there were there were four uh, young women uh, who, that I, in the dream logic, knew to be from third world countries, they were suspended on a line that went right through their heads, like literally right in the left side and out the right side. They were wearing these beautiful white smocks, and they had long, beautiful black hair. And uh, they were they were not unhappy. They were sort of just there, talking a little, chatting. And on either side, there were these kind of big A-shaped um, sort of supports. 
It looked like the sides of a, of a swing set. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, and I just looked at that, and I was like, and, and the, the thing that was so weird about the dream was instead of going, oh, my God, call the police, the guy in the dream went, oh, I'm so lucky. I finally did it. And so the feeling was that this is something that everybody had, and this guy had been sort of screwing up by not being able to provide it. When you say the guy in the dream, you're talking about the you figure in the yeah, dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was I can remember the feeling of my hands on either side of the window frame, and looking, then turning and looking in a dream, looking back at my wife, and, and thinking, "Oh, we're so lucky. What, what did I do to deserve all this good luck?" So usually, you know, when you have a dream, it's not writable. It's you know, hey. There's a there's a penguin masturbation conference. That's really cool. And then you wake up and go, no, that's not. But this one was was deep, and it was especially that the the uh, the, the the jarring uh, reaction to what he was seeing versus what he was seeing. So I just kind of let it sit there for a while, and then after a couple of weeks, I started writing it up. So so that the it was a long, I think a twelve or thirteen year process of finishing it, mainly because that image was so weird and so troubling. And it, on one level, it's obvious. It's sort of a you know. Uh, we oppress the third world thing. But if that's all it was, then the story wouldn't be sufficient. So part of it was to show you, well, what else is the story about and kind of keep churning that up? Well, it feels like in large part what that story is about is trying to figure out how and what to teach your kids. Right. Yeah. And in that case, you know, and this is true uh, somewhat of me too, which is in the anxiety about your possible shortcomings you it takes a certain amount of guts to stick to the real principles which is yeah we don't have any money but we're good people to thine own self be true you know uh you're like yeah that's true however also we're going to get a new car you know you, you sort of want to shore the thing up where you can you know it, um you want to be both you know have the moral high ground and have some nice stuff uh and so i found that often in my case you know you, you imagine sort of depression parents who say well billy we don't have anything but we've got our lord you know or something and uh, my thing was a little less principled. Well, we do have our Lord, but we don't have to apologize to anybody because we also have a brand new Nissan, you know. So I suspect I'm not alone in that in that inclination. And he he you know was sort of even worse than than I was. When when in your life have you felt the most um, the most economic pressure? Uh, hmm. Well, I. Uh, I lived out here in L.A. for a while, and that was probably the most comical economic pressure. But I didn't have any responsibilities. But I remember I worked as a doorman in Beverly Hills here, and uh, we had gotten on. It was supposed to be a big deal because you got all these tips, but then the place had this policy that said you don't need a tip, any tips because you're on salary. But the salary was $4 an hour, so it was kind of this, you know, capitalist shell game. Uh, but I remember, you know, we d- didn't have any money and living with a group of people and just kind of going, well, it's going to be a long day, and I have three. I have $2.00 which is not enough to buy lunch, going in the fridge and, and seeing everyone else's food and like, yeah, And then every so often go, well, a potato. Nobody will mind. So I, there was a time where I actually took uncooked potatoes to work as as lunch. So that, that was sort of low. Well, multiple occasions? Yeah, yeah, whenever I could find them. I thought, like, I, I can't take their ham. That would be uncool. But a potato, you know, anybody. So then, and then the big trick was you'd go to work, and if you could manage to get, you know, sometimes people tipped you anyway. And if they did, it was like the pastrami truck would come at, th- and it was three dollars and eighty cents or something. So if you could accrue the, you know, the th- but I, but really, I mean, it's, I've never had true financial, you know, where like if if I'd called my parents at that point, they they would have helped. But they would have sent you some potatoes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they have so many potatoes. They were like so potato rich. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think that's one of the you know as a fiction writer, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to freeze to death. You have to go outside when it's twenty, and go. Mm. 
and then you then you extrapolate. And so you know, there's there's kind of a um, a shtick in, in among writers, which is kind of like that old Monty Python sketch about we used to live in a lake. You know, so you you exaggerate your hardships. And I and I as I get older, I'm like I've never had any actual hardships, but they're not paying you to have hardships. They're paying you to have uh, imaginative empathy. But I, I I don't know. I was just reading this. I, I was reading this article in the New York Magazine the other day about how uh, high school is terrible. It's mm-hmm. the worst. I mean, breaking news. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> part of the point of this article is that it is that in your late adolescence, certain parts of your brain are just exploding with growth, and other parts haven't quite grown. And mm-hmm. part of the effect of that is that your experiences are dramatically more vivid and mm. well-remembered through the rest of your life in a way that no other part of that is not true of any other oh, part that, of your really life. That's really interesting. So it's a chemical or neurological phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that makes it so that, you know, in my case, I still have really strong feelings about Tony, Tony, Tony. <laughs> you know? Right. No, I, I I also heard somewhere that there's some neurochemical thing that uh, I think is as you get older, this chemical diminishes, and that's the chemical that tells your brain how to process time. So this would explain why when you you know the childhood summers kind of go on forever, and then as you get older, that there's that phenomenon of the calendar pages flipping. So I, I love that idea that your your you know your experiences are basically neurochemical, and uh, and and I think also, especially when you're that age, and offenses seem to really loom large, you know, places where someone disrespected you or, or uh, uh, said that incredibly mean thing that, you, you know, that you're still remembering 60 years later. And trying to, it's the whole Citizen Kane uh, thing, I guess. You have a few kind of kids and, and adolescents in the book that I, um, that I really enjoyed reading your writing from their perspective. In the first story in the book, it's called Victory Lap. Um, the two narrators are both adolescents, one a boy, one a girl. Um, and um, there's this part that I was hoping you could read from the girl's perspective. This is before any of the action in the story starts to right. take place. Oh, yeah. So so this girl's kind of a sweetheart, kind of an optimistic sweetheart. And so this is her, I guess, her philosophical statement. Um or just before this, she said that uh, each of us is a rainbow. That's her. You know. So, but as far as that rainbow idea, she believed that people were amazing. Mom was awesome. Dad was awesome. Her teachers worked so hard and had kids of their own. And some were even getting divorced, such as Mrs. D's, but still always took time for their students. What she found especially inspiring about Mrs. D's was that even though Mr. D's was cheating on Mrs. D's with the lady who ran the bowling alley. Mrs. Dees was still teaching the best course ever in ethics, posing such questions as, can goodness win, or do good people always get shafted, evil being more reckless? That last bit seemed to be Mrs. Dees taking a shot at the bowling alley gal, but seriously, is life fun or scary? Are people good or bad? On the one hand, that clip of those gauntish, pale bodies being steamrolled while fat German ladies looked on chomping gum. On the other hand, Sometimes rural folks, even if their particular farms were on hills, stayed up late filling sandbags. <laughs> <laughs> there's, some, there's something about that adolescent blitheness that actually sort of infects all, all, almost all of your characters. Yeah, well, that was me. That, I mean, that was just me at that age. I had a, a big Ayn Rand <laughs> and I just, I thought, uh, and Khalil Gibran, you know, I just thought, oh, I don't know why people get, have so much trouble in life, you know. All you had to do is do the right thing. You know, which is what I plan to do in the rest of my life. And then, 
you know. <laughs> how did that? How did that feeling change for you? Just uh, you know, just by getting bonked by things in life. But then even before that, I'd been in Asia. I worked in the oil fields, and that was huge too because. Uh, I didn't suffer at all over there. I had a great time. But, you know, you suddenly, uh, I'd never been out of the States and would be dropped into these, you know, pretty impoverished places. And, and just uh, even a lunkhead like me could sort of see that this there was some, even to call it disparity would be, it was just like cosmic uh, disparity. You know, these people who were happy and working hard and just for no money. And, and uh, I, I walked by this building in, I was out drinking, you know, in uh, in Singapore and uh, kind of stumbled home at night. And about midnight, two in the morning, there's a big hotel going up. And in the foundation, there's this motion, like this crab-like motion. So I stopped and looked down, and there's all these, you know, old Malaysian women who were on the night shift. And they were they were basically, uh, you know, wearing sarongs or whatever and barefoot and cleaning out boulders by hand, you know. So that was a real, like a, a huge moment for me to look down and go, oh, you are... 23, basically you don't know much, you're drunk, and you got $800 in the bank or whatever it is. Uh, hmm, that's interesting. They are 87 years old. There's no money in the bank. They're carrying rocks by moonlight. What did you do, you know? And and the, the uh, Ayn Rand part of me said, well, you worked hard. I'm like, no, you, no, I didn't, you know. Or you, you know, you're someone who understands that, that that power is beauty. And you look down at those women, you went, yeah, I don't, I'm not quite buying that. So those kind of things, you know, gradually they, they kind of you know, just complicate your worldview, I guess. So then how do you be, when you get to that place, how do you find some measure of peace and happiness besides taking an annual vacation to the same place? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe, maybe, maybe that kind of peace and happiness is overrated. I mean, to be a little, to be a little mindful of that stuff and agitated by it isn't such a bad thing. But also, you know, the, um, yeah, I mean, that's a part of just, just human stupidity. You think, well, I didn't do it, you know, or you, or you think, uh, yeah, I, I really am concerned about those things. Well, now I've got to go do an interview, you know? So that's so on one level, that's pretty, that's pretty scary. But, um, also, maybe just that, you know, it's funny because maybe one manifestation of a materialist viewpoint is that you think economic disparity is the end game, you know, uh, whereas, in fact, if you really, if I wanted to really be honest, I'd say, well, there have been times when I was poorer, uh, but had my head on pretty straight or, um, you know, like, well, you turn to Jesus and the poor will be with us always. So I think I, I think most things that seems to me morally, your job is to keep four or five ideas going at once. So the idea that, you know, we all know the person who won't enjoy anything because life is so cruel, you know. And that person, that's an egotistical standpoint somehow it feels to me. Uh, you also know the person who enjoys everything and doesn't even care, you know. The, that's not good either. So I think to kind of keep all that in the air at the same time, and then realize that the only way you can actually really morally act is one action at a time on one particular day with one particular person. Um, and so maybe your your biggest moral imperative is to bring all your energy to that moment rather than distracting with a bunch of theoretical what-ifs, something like that. I don't know. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer George Saunders. He's won acclaim for his short story collections, including Pastoralia and Civil Warland in Bad Decline. His new book is called Tenth of December. Do you have a hard time as a grown up? Yes. The <laughs> the the last story in the book is about uh 
uh, young sort of fat dorky boy who imagines himself as a hero and an older man who is thinking about ending his life or planning to end his mm-hmm. life and their, the, the intersection between their two lives. Do you ever find yourself as a grown-up having a hard time getting to a place where you can go down paths in your imagined world to make fiction? Because I know that I it's almost impossible for me now as a grown-up to think of anything that isn't actually happening. Oh, I, I don't find that hard, actually. I, I love it. I, uh, like when, you know, I love the chance to write a kid, maybe because of what you mentioned earlier about the, the neurology of memory. But when I think back to grade school in Chicago, oh, it's just incredibly deep stuff. And, I mean, the, the situations and the time and the people. But also, I, I, can, I can kind of remember my thought processes pretty, pretty well. So that, to me, isn't so difficult. But also, you know, it, it's mechanical in a sense because you're um, – you don't go into a piece like that so that you can remember childhood or but, but you're kind of just trying to make a paragraph that works and then a paragraph that works also causes problems it it, it causes you know so so to if you write a uh, a paragraph that convinces the reader that there is this older guy who has cancer who needs to die he feels like he needs to get out of this quickly if you do that convincingly then you know in in narrative terms then you need to produce something that interrupts that so in a certain way, that all of this kind of remembering and, and so on comes from a fairly strictly mechanical need that the story produces day to day. It's, it's maybe one of the wonderful side benefits of fiction is you, don't, you had no idea when you got up that you were going to recreate the way you used to play fake hockey in your kitchen in 1968. But the story says you need, you need two minutes of a kid thinking, you know, and suddenly you get the opportunity to go back and revisit that. It seems like also maybe the the experience of going down a path narratively in in fiction and sort of putting yourself emotionally in a state and trying to solve that problem so that it's something for the reader is not all that wildly different from that physical act you described in nonfiction of sending yourself to the crack bridge. It's a great observation. It, it's literally the same thing. You 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 sense uh, you know in your three hundred sixty degrees of mental space you sense a forbidden door. And your first thing is to turn away from it. And then the craftsman in you says, nah, come on, turn towards it. And that's, that often happens in fiction for sure. And in fact, it's funny because you, as you're doing it, you'll find structural ways to kind of put a tarp in front of that door. You know, you, you, often the, the best um, solution is the one that you've meticulously almost roped out of the story. So I, in my, when I teach, I have this idea called avoidance moments. And you'll see it all the time in young fiction writers uh, and old fiction writers. You get to the emotional hotspot of a story, and every reader in the world knows you got to go there. And the writer will feel it and go, oh, no, 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 that's too much pressure. And often they'll put in a, a, a narrative break, you know, a, a, or they'll put in a spaceship or some kind of funky technical, like a flashback to 1846 or something. And so they'll do almost anything. Your subconscious will do almost anything to avoid going to the deepest place there is. And we'll actually mechanically do it in the story through all – sometimes the language will just fall apart or there will be an improbable – I had uh, one story I remember where something really intense and uncomfortable and sexual was supposed to happen. And uh, this was in some kind of a cabin in the woods. That, and we'd been told there was no electricity. And just as the thing was about to happen, the phone rings. 
and you're like, wait a minute, there's no phone. You know, so so that's it's an interesting. I think it's a natural kind of thing that uh, the creative the creative imagination will do when you get to something that's too hot for it to handle in that revision. It's not ready for it, so it just puts up a to be completed sign over it in some funny mechanical way. Um, like uh, a few years ago, I think shortly after the last time you were on our show, um, you got a MacArthur grant. I did. Yeah, yeah, oh, I, man, know, I know, I know, right? The check didn't. Uh, well, I'll, I'll look into that. <laughs> yeah, you should get your accountant to call them <laughs> and check in about that check. Um, does that come with any like? Uh, is there any important secrets we should know about being getting a MacArthur grant? Like, do you get a special hat? Are you sworn to defend the governor of Kentucky? Well, your eagle swells up. That's one thing. I <laughs> no, you know, it's actually one of the amazing things about it is they, the the uh, the the guy from there calls you and says. Uh, he says, are you sitting down? And then he says, you got this thing, and you should know there are absolutely no no commitments. And there weren't. It was five years, and the money showed up. And uh, Were you okay with not putting commitments, with not adding your own commitments to it? You know, I, I actually, I know just what you're saying, and I kind of was okay with it. I think I'd gotten to a point in my life where I thought, well, that's weird, but okay, that's so... And, and actually, you know, the, the gratitude that you feel is really something. And uh, so I just kind of felt like... Uh, if you get good luck, your job is to live up to it. That's it. And but part of living up to it, especially as a writer, is to not get too crazy. Like don't don't just stay or keep writing the way you were. That's why they gave it to you. Um, but you know what was interesting was psychologically, it felt. I mean, we talked about the money thing. It felt like the ceiling lifted just a little bit, and suddenly I, I noticed actually that I had a, a, an internal flinch whenever I'd use a credit card. You know that moment where you're waiting for it to come back. You know. Uh, that went away a little bit, or um, you know, if you when you were <laughs> silly stuff like when you're calculating a tip, you'd go, eh, we'll err on the side of more, you know. And then, so that was one psychological, thing. and also that something really weird about the the approval from afar made me uh, really want to do better. Like, uh, wow, those people that I don't know thought well of me, so in my work, I'm going to err on the side of. The bolder choices, and now it's kind of weird that that it sh- that something like that should be necessary for you to feel that way. But it, but I'm just telling you, it did happen, you know. So it was kind of sweet, you know, that the money was wonderful and and uh, y- you know appreciated. But then the, the real benefit, and I think you can see it in this book actually, was that I th- I thought, well, all right, there's some people I don't know think that I'm a good writer, then I should really try my best to do it and to live into the vision of me, which is a uh, maybe maybe the best effect of the whole the whole deal. Did you redo your yard? Well, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I can't talk about that. It's very, it's very, yeah, actually, I did it, I redid it with uh, 17 jet skis. <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a modern art thing. <laughs> well, George, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It's a it's great, great pleasure. You You're a show. great interviewer. Thank you. George Saunders' uh, hilarious and, and uh, wonderful new book is called The Tenth of December. What kind of flower is Maria Bamford? I think I I may be the orchid of comedy. I'll talk to Maria after a break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. You can follow Bullseye on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and click like. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Maria Bamford is sensitive. You can see it in her characters on stage. When she adopts a character's voice, she cuts straight 
to deep feelings, the kind we usually keep hidden. When she voices a belligerent bully, you feel right away what's most awful about their bullying, but you get the bully's pain, too. In her new special, The Special Special Special, she performs at home as her parents watch from her living room chairs. Her pug wanders around in the background, and even in front of her parents, Maria's unafraid to go deep into her own issues, including her hospitalization last year for depression. But here's the great part about all of this, if it feels like too much to handle. Maria is also one of the funniest people in the world, just super, super, super funny. Here she is from the special, special, special with her parents laughing uh, as she describes her ultimate online dating profile. On the, uh, I was on eHarming Me as well as Attach.Glom. And <laughs> those ones were, uh, I cast a wide net. I said I was a little more active and flexible than I truly am, you know. <laughs> hey guys, I can pull on a sparkly gown and go to the steakhouse or I can strap us both to a boxcar and ride the rails. <laughs> no, I work hard. I play harder. I'll rest and I'm dead and I'm never gonna die. <laughs> Got your passport? Let's go parasail line biking. My current ad reads, I can wear the same outfit for five days or I can crouch naked in the shower and get real small. <laughs> I sleep hard. I dream harder. I'm on a roller coaster with my dogs and Beyonce. I will wake up when it's time. <laughs> Got your library card? Let's go pay off some of my fines. Because I do not borrow books. At least. I like there to be a public record of me stealing something. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, Maria. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I think what I what I love about that bit, I mean, there's there's just some wonderful jokes in that bit, but it is such a vivid illustration of um, when we are trying to uh, connect to someone else. I mean, romantically in that sense. So the stakes are real high, but just in general. The the lengths we will go to to try and present ourselves in the right light. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, that when I'm trying to do that less, you know, just because it, it's so useless in the end, because then they're like, wait a minute. You were that fit way for about 24 hours, and then suddenly <laughs> um, you fell fell over. <laughs> tipped over and you you never got up. <laughs> Are you saying that your your ability to stand upright is all a facade? It's a I don't know, it comes and goes, comes and goes. You know, one of the things is that as a stand-up comedian, you're you have to have an external focus in your work. You have to be thinking about what the audience thinks is funny and what the audience doesn't think is funny. And that I mean, that just has to be part of what you do, or else you won't work, right? Well, I don't. I, I what's most important to me is what I think is funny. Like that, that is most important to me because I have to say it over and over again. So even if somebody doesn't get it or whatever, I mean, I, I would like to reach all, but you know, sometimes you. I think I, I may be the. Uh, orchid of comedy uh where you have to have this you know certain 
temperature in the room and then get the right amount of moisture. And it takes years to really get a bloom going. But um, once you do, they're so beautiful. Oh, it got too hot. <laughs> have you have you learned over the years about um what the what the particular you know hothouse temperature and humidity settings are that that leave you successful or do you still do you still go into a room and and you can't predict whether it's going to work or not well yeah, I mean, you, you never know, but I, I, I mean, I have rooms in LA that are, you know, it's all nice young hipsters in their tight pants and uh, their pointy shoes, and you know, it's very warm or, or, yeah, any sort of theater environment. I, I, I seem to do well in, and 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 then, uh, uh, you know, places what you know, the comedy store, or Laugh Factory, uh improv on i would say most nights it's gonna be a tougher sell uh you know so uh i would hope uh you know of course i yeah i i i think that's true just because i've i've been to those places and gone oh that's not what they've come for they have come for something entirely different i am so sorry (laughs) have you had situations where your expectation upon, you know, stepping into the wings or surveying the crowd before the show was, oh no, this is not this is this is not what they signed up for. And then had the opposite experience happen? Yeah, yeah, like sometimes yeah, I've like I've prejudged people by their covers, you know, if they go, Oh, it's got a bunch of guys in their military uniforms and I go, Oh no. But it turned out they were super supportive or um yeah, you just you really you you never know. And sometimes people who say uh say they really love what you do kind of uh ha you know, have can have too much to drink. And then they start saying your jokes as you're saying them. And that I mean that's a very that's a champagne problem. Uh, the champagne's <laughs> dribbling far too fast into my mouth, Jesse. I need to have some sort of assistant. Help me with it, um, but it, yes. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can bomb anywhere in Los Angeles tonight. <laughs> Why did you choose to uh, do your act for your big hour-long special in front of your parents? Uh, number one, I love my parents, and any time that I can spend with them uh, is a bonus. So you you were thinking of, like the makeup chair. Just around the set at the craft services table, that would just be fun. It'd to be spend some. fun, and and they're they're easy. They're an easy laugh. Also, I seem to do better in front of them when they are an audience, <laughs> 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 and not just my parents. Uh, I told my dad I was working on some, you know, some bits, and uh, my on the phone, my dad was like, uh, "Is it is that the end?" Are you done? Like, <laughs> like, uh oh. So, uh, when they have to sit beneath me, you know, in a chair, and I'm up and lit somehow, the stuff seems to go off a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but also, 
it, it, I thought it'd be fun and more intimate and, and, um, uh, yeah, I wasn't feeling so good last year. And the idea of like doing a giant 300, okay, let's say 50, 100 theater, you know, and getting that all organized sounded like, oh, let's just, uh, and, and I like the idea that it is, you know, <laughs> who do you strive for or who do I strive for the most, you know, is trying to get uh, the approval of people that I love. Um, and uh, and then you see at the end that they're not that impressed. Like my mom just totally goes, oh, I just don't think she should have gone after Paula Dean like that. I mean, you know, they just totally <laughs> – no, they, they are genuinely very supportive and um, – uh, yeah. There is something nice about a structured interaction with your parents, parents yeah. where, they, <laughs> yes. where they have to listen to you. Yes. Where you have all the power because yeah. you have the microphone. Yep. And where their experience with you is going to be exclusively built around <laughs> the thing that you do best. Yes. That is, I mean, I think that's why I did stand up is so that, you know, because around the dinner table when I was a kid, you... I, my dad would say, hey, this is Maria's turn, Chuck. You know, I'd get to have three minutes or something at the table, but I would never get to have the time because uh, it would always be interrupted by m- the heckles of my sister and mother. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's like a – yeah, it's, it's totally controlled environment. <laughs> there is something about them that is very, you know, northern Midwestern. And you have a wonderful bit uh, that's in the special and, and on your most recent CD um, that I, I guess you would call Joy Whack-A-Mole. Right, right. Let's take, let's take a listen to that. Mom, Amy had her baby. Oh, that is great news, honey. I mean, it's not the greatest news for the 600,000 kids in foster care, but if she wants a fresh one, <laughs> oh, jeez. Everybody wants one that looks like them. It's so selfish. Mom, I'm... I'm doing a show tonight. Sweet, I got a joke for you. A friend of mine, she's so funny. She said you could use it. She, coincidentally, she was in foster care. She had been airlifted out of the Sudan in the late 90s because she had been bearmed and belegged by the Janjawi, the horseback militia. She'd love to do stand-up, but she can't. Oh, oh. And it's really a hospice situation. It's just a matter of time. But the priest comes in, and he asks her, would you like us to light a candle for you in the chapel? She says, sassy as you please, teletyping through her eyelids. <laughs> well, how many candles you got? <laughs> because so many horrible things have happened to her and keep happening. Sweetie, have a good show tonight. What you do is so important. <laughs> <laughs> there, it seems like there's something um, there's something really important when you live in uh, like a frozen night, nightmare scape <laughs> for five six months out of the yeah. year in keeping the most even of keels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think your Northern Europeans who later migrated to uh, north the north of the Midwest of the United States, like that, is a really valued thing like just you can't get too high or too low when it's negative 20 outside right right yeah you've got to get along with everybody and um yeah i mean 
I was I was wondering about that because physically my family isn't like we don't touch each other that much or you give shoulder based hugs. Oh, why even hug? You know what's the point? And um, <laughs> they and I was like, well, I wonder why that is because you guess you'd be in cozy clothes environments. Maybe you wanted to have your own space, but um, my, and my mom is very breezy. Like she's just she likes she can float through, you know, and which I I trying to write some stuff about that out my mom you know how she, how does she stay so cheerful you know listen kid you know i mean the stores are still open you know i, I mean how bad can it be but i get it you know i go to subway get myself a turkey sub i think what's going on here because i'm a curious kitty and you get those packaged apple slices but it's catch as catch can and i think maybe we don't have to figure it all out you know your father lost confidence after the prostate surgery, and I said, why don't you go get yourself something? He went out, bought himself the used Dodge Caravan, and then we were back in business. <laughs> Sweetie, i got to <laughs> upload all my Weight Watchers points into the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> like, she just, she's just buoyant. She's a very buoyant per- person. Like, she's just uh She's an MFT, right? Marriage and family marriage therapist? Marriage and family therapist, yeah. My my mother-in-law is uh is an MFT. I've spent a, I've been with my wife forever, so um I've spent a lot of time at their house and it's a very interesting thing to have a trained <laughs> a, tr- a a medically trained family operator. Yeah, 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 yeah. In yeah. the household. How how did you think that affected your life? Well, she didn't get uh therapized until after my I graduated from college. Oh. Too little too late, Marilyn. <laughs> uh but uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> but it I mean it's been it is great it's great because we do have and my mom has had uh episodes of uh mania and anxiety and depression is so so that's something i share with her and you know there's which is yeah just things that uh everybody's okay with and um and yeah and my mom's obsessed with uh jesus my sister's obsessed with uh spirituality i'm obsessed with the idea that there is no Comfort. And uh, <laughs> anyways, it was a great Christmas. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny because we all try to have similar interests, even though we disagree with each other. It's everyone's passionately interested in their point of view. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Maria Bamford, is a comedian and actress with a new stand-up special that's daring and brilliant and really funny. It was taped in front of a live audience of two, her parents. It's called The Special, Special, Special. Your last CD was called Unwanted Thought Syndrome. Yes. Which is a, a condition from which you suffer. Oh, see, yeah. I, I don't have it as much anymore because you can get uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and that can kind of take it, take care of it. Um, and and you talk about uh, you talk about bipolar and your depression in yeah. on, on this special. Was, did you – was there a point when you decided – that you were going to talk about that stuff on stage? Well, I mean, I think I, I am one of those comedians. I like the feeling of like, oh, people might be uncomfortable. A little a little bit of that I think I do like. But also I think because it was such an intense experience, like, well, what else am I going to write about? Or at least it, to me, that's what I enjoy about uh, creativity is like writing something I'm super mad about or super um, – like one thing I was so, uh, you know, it's just 
yeah, so many things happened uh, that I was just super surprised by, uh, even in myself, that, you know, I come from a family that, uh, you know, is very supportive of mental health services, things like that. I've been in therapy since I was like 11 when I started having, you know, couldn't sleep at night. And I would not go into the hospital, you know, like, I. It, so it was like, that is insane. Like, I'm this West Coast groovy yoga hey man you know you know take care of yourself and i wouldn't do it because it was too embarrassing it was just too i felt too ashamed just part of it that's about stigma but i think um you know hospitalization for mental health problems is kind of scary just in general right right but i think the thing that puts an even more layer of scariness is that it's ashamed you know like don't tell anyone you know, hear something, you know, or uh, that it's uh, it is different from different kinds of health care where people come to your room with balloons and <laughs> things like that. Of course, you can't bring in balloons into the psych ward because there are many people who are creative and might find something to do with them. Um, it is disturbing, but it's also super safe. You know, like I was planning to hurt myself and to put that responsibility on friends and family to go, hey, can you do a 24-hour vigil on me? <laughs> Just keep an eye out. Ooh, I don't feel good. Oh, ah, I'm still here. You know, like, that's ridiculous. You have a bit on the record about a, a very well-meaning friend who comes to visit you. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and gets, you know, just gets the whole thing wrong, basically. Um, gives you some sort of destructive advice. And I wonder, like, at, at what point you processed that conversation to the point where you could figure out something that was funny about it, <laughs> like where you were at when it was happening, if you were able to have external, you know, if you were able to look upon it from outside of it or or when you realized, like, oh, I can exert some control over this by thinking about what part of it is a joke. But yeah, yeah. I think that was months, months later. You know, I didn't, I just didn't feel good. And in retrospect, I felt very, um, I mean, I was totally kind of out of it at the time. Um, but I remember feeling really upset that this person thought, you know, that I was doing the wrong thing. Like they're like, you got to, you know, um, I mean, I can do the bit. May I? Yes, of I course. I do love Yes, to do of course. Um, uh, Maria, you know, this place is just negative energy. You've got to get out of here. Right, right. That's, yeah, that's what I, but the thing is they 5150'd me and they took away my shoelaces and my brain is going off like an untethered jackhammer and I can barely hear it. You know what? Get out into nature, you know? Go up to Big Sur Exactly. That's what I said. Like slowly into the surf, you know, can't find me, no muss, no fuss. You know, I talked to my spiritual advisor and he said people who commit suicide, sometimes they just need to go on to the next level, the next world. And so I guess I've just come in to, to say goodbye. Okay. You're horrible. And uh, please come visit me tomorrow. And you're 
horrible. And if you could bring me a 20-ounce Diet Coke in a b- bottle, because if I hold it next to my face, it brings some sense of cool. And they won't let us have cans. Uh, why don't you bring that little ray of sunshine over to the children's hospital? You wouldn't have to make a wish if you believed. Um, and I think it was a way to comfort herself, too, to say, oh, if you died, it's meaningful. And, uh, you know, that it's a spiritual thing and now you're going to be a, uh, yeah, that, it, it, which, I, I mean, I, I, I get it, but it was just like so much like, uh, oh, I'm abandoned, you know, sort of like, well, you're making this choice <laughs> to be sick, you know, some, and maybe that's an L.A. thing, but. I, I do think that's a part of our culture to distance yourself from the Ill, any illness by saying, oh, well, they got sick because they're idiots, you know, on some level or they're – but I won't. I won't – you know, bad things won't happen to me, um, you know. So um, like I had a friend who had died of cervical cancer and everyone was like, well, well how did she – I mean, did she know – you know, like – trying to figure out the map of, like, how can I not have that happen to me? Like, how can I kind of blame that person so it won't happen to me? I want to ask you one about one last thing, which is that you talk about all these um, scary things in your life in your special. Um, you know, I mean, from committing yourself uh, to, you know, your relationship with your parents that you're talking about in front of your parents. Um <laughs> I feel like the I feel like though that the maybe the scariest thing that you talk about is um your dog dying. Oh yeah. That's a um, bummer. You had a real s- sweet dog named Blossom. Blossom the awesome pug. Who who she she appeared on um uh our show one time <laughs> via webcam as yeah. I recall. She's very talented. Um and uh and Blossom died in a in a home accident. Home accident, and it was as it wasn't uh, involuntary manslaughter. I didn't plan. I didn't leave a trap. It was more <laughs> neglect. I re- removed a ramp that went from the house to the backyard, and I just just didn't have it in my head. Oh, she's gonna try to go out that ramp, and she'll fall. The approximately four feet and she, to her death, which is, she, she was she was 12 years old, and so, uh, and it was a super hot day, it's about 110 degrees or whatever, and um, yeah, so, and yeah, it was just awful, you know, and, but, but I tried to talk about it because it was so, I, I just felt so awful about myself, and the joke is then that, uh, of course, she would have forgiven me. Listen, I, I grew up in Berlin in the 30s, you know, <laughs> when we could and on each other with impunity. There's no big deal. Now you lift a leg at a dog park, everybody's up in arms, you know. Had the shoe been on the other foot, I, you uh, pressed my Lady Beretta and been shot in the head, you know, I know. You would have forgiven me and... And anyways, within 48 hours, as it has been documented, uh, as a pug, I would have eaten you. <laughs> and uh, Which is true. Uh, pugs have eaten their owners uh, after their deaths. Um, but also, yeah, well, I Google, and then I Googled online, like, I killed my pet, I killed my loved one. And just heart-wrenching stories of just, like, moments of distraction and people who obviously 
love their child, love, you know, humanity, love uh, their love dogs, animals, you know, and they just, you know, <laughs> you know, whatever horrible, unspeakable, uh, shameful thing you've done, uh, Google it. Uh, Sunday has done is exactly what you have done or worse and is currently on a book tour. You're never alone uh, because I typed in, I killed uh, my beloved uh, into an internet search engine, up came chat room uh, with a young lady who uh, had sadly left her baby in a hot car. Oh my God, we're all doing the best we can, and sometimes it is not that good. It could happen to anybody, and um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it is me, though, but I, but I felt ter- terrible just, uh, you know, because this is a dog that I, you know, uh, just she was she was she was my best friend and uh just i you know there's just nothing worse that i could imagine without living in a war zone uh or <laughs> or uh some you know it was just it was just such a bummer terrible so it, it it is a terrible thing i i i i will take this opportunity to say that um you know it, it is a, it is not. It's not a your fault situation. It's a, it's a horrible things happen in the world situation. But um, but there's but there's something significant to me I wore, in that. Helmets. Put a little helmet on her. <laughs> there's something significant to me in that in that you um, that you chose to bring that to the stage because it's not. It's not an easy sell to an audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the hardest sell there could basically be um, to an audience. And I I wonder if you have a feeling about why you wanted to do that. Well, I think the same thing. Like, I I just think, it's kind of, I mean, for for me at at this point, which I feel sort of embarrassed by it. Like, I, I have a very supportive fan base, so it's a pretty easy sell for, be, you know, people are like, we're, ah, you know, <laughs> we're happy for you, or you, you know, want to be uh, loving. But also, like, that was something I just thought no one can tell, no one told me, no one could tell me about it. Like, it was one of those experiences where, like, I tried to find on Amazon, like, something of, like, I... I did this horrible thing that caused the death of, you know, like a book about that. And I I couldn't seem to find it. But then once I started talking about it, and that's what, another reason I talk about things, so that people talk about it to me. <laughs> it's just like you shouldn't have to deal with that by yourself. Maria, you're, you're number one. Thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I was I was late and confused. Maria Bamford's amazing new special is called The Special, Special, Special. You can find it from her website, mariabamford.com, or you can find it online at chill.com, where uh, you can buy it for streaming or download for an extraordinarily low price. Every week on our show, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. I'm older than I used to be. I'm married, and I have a son who just last week we dropped off at nursery school for the first time. As time passes, I feel less and less like 
my own discrete entity. When you're married with a kid, it's tough to tell where I ends and we starts. My borders bleed into my wife's and my child's, and I'm part of a family, not just a guy all by himself with his own priorities and desires and will and all that. But sometimes I catch a moment where the family stuff and love stuff and baby stuff doesn't quite fade away, but maybe it's not quite so pressing. A little time to myself. That's when I think of a William Carlos Williams poem that I love. It's called Dance Russe. He writes about peacefully enjoying the moment before his family wakes up, sitting in his own quiet room. The sun is just rising, a a flame-white disk in silken mists above shining trees, is how he puts it. And... um, that's when he takes off his clothes and does a funny naked butt dance. His language is a bit more elegant, of course, what with being a legendary poet and all. I, in my north room, dance naked, grotesquely, before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely. I was born to be lonely. I am best so. Somehow this little indecency, this little self-indulgent goof, doesn't feel to me anyway like a rejection of family or a spirited defense of me against the creeping tide of us. To me, it feels like a gleeful little highlight of how self fits into belonging, how me reinforces us. This is how Williams closes the poem. If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks against the yellow-drawn shades, who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? Yeah, who shall say that? Bring them on. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.